Thank you, Dr. Flippo. Yeah, so if uh, you've had me before, most students call me Doc Ski. That doesn't offend me one bit. Just a little backstory to that. Some people are like, dude, that's kind of weird. He goes by Ski. But where I grew up, my high school, there were a lot of uh, uh, Polish uh, students in our high school, a lot of last names that ended with Ski. I was one of the bigger ones, so they actually called me Big Ski. And so that just kind of carried over. And then my Instagram, I think, is The Big Ski. And then some students found that out, and so, you know, then it just kind of went on from there. But anyways, so we, we're, we've been doing a number of chapels this year, throughout this year, kind of on taking students through a journey through the Bible, just to kind of introduce you to some of the stories, some of the themes of Scripture. And I want to carry on that theme today. We, we've covered some passages in the Old Testament, and now we're making this transition into the New Testament. And Kind of our, our idea here is, is just not only to take you on a journey through the Bible, but to expose you to some various themes that we find in Scripture and uh, kind of unpack those a little bit in this time that we have together in chapel. But even more than just unpacking these things, you know, it's, it's the application component, right? It's so, it's so important. We can study Scripture, but if we don't learn how to apply what God is speaking to us, then it's kind of what's the point? And so we want to look at these themes, but we also want to look at some practical application today. And so the passage I want to look at today is found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can open up there or pull out your phone and your version app, whatever it is. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16 is a very, very interesting passage of Scripture. And, and initially when you look at it, you're kind of like, okay, you can get like a whole sermon out of that one little passage there. And as I began to unpack this on my own, there were just so many things that were unearthed in the process. And that's what makes Bible study so much fun. And so I want to read this passage to you here really, really quick. Luke 6, 12 through 16, it says, In these days, he, referring to Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came... He called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Heavenly Father, I just pray today that you would speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. In your name I pray, amen. Let me take you back a moment here to your elementary school days, if you would just uh, indulge me here. Think back to like fifth grade, you know, it's fall, you're coming back to school, and one of the big uh, events of the day is recess, right? You sit through your classes, classes are boring, but you're looking forward to that time of recess. You go out on the playground, you get to play games, and, and, and no matter when you grew up, kind of one of those epic playground games was kickball, right? How many old school kickballers do we have in here? You played some kickball. Man, not as many as I thought, maybe, you know. So, But you know what I'm talking about, that, that kickball game. And, and so everybody would line up. We're going to play kickball. We're going to pick teams. And, and the captains would be designated. And then what would happen is they would begin to pick people for the teams. And as people are being picked out, you're kind of running the numbers through your mind. You're like, okay, I haven't been picked yet. And you're watching this person get picked. And, 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 and the numbers start to dwindle. And, and before you know it, you realize, oh, wait, there's an odd number here. 
That means someone's not going to get picked for one of these kickball teams, right? That's like your worst fear in elementary school, that I'm not going to get picked for the team, let alone get picked last. I'd rather get picked last than not even get picked at all, right? You know, and you get to that moment, you're down yourself and that one other person and that coach is deciding who they're going to pick. And the worst thing ever in elementary school, they pick that other student and you get left out. Wow. What a moment. You're like, man, thanks for encouraging us today. What does this have to do with the 12 disciples? I'm glad you asked that question because it's a great question. So one of the classes I teach here at North Central is reading and interpreting scripture. Many of you have had that class with me. Um, It's one of my favorite classes to teach because we get this chance to really dig into the Bible. But not only to dig into scripture, it's this chance to really instill in you as a student this love for scripture. This love for something that for many people are very overwhelmed when it comes to reading the Bible. They look at it and they try to read it. They don't understand it. And so as a result, they kind of um, um, shun this ability to be able to read Scripture because it just seems so overwhelming. But we want to use a class like this to provide you with the tools so you can feel empowered that you can sit down and study God's Word for yourself. That you don't have to rely on a pastor or a preacher to tell you what God's word says. You yourself can read it. And so I, I love this process, this journey that we take students on to read scripture, to understand scripture, to feel empowered that on their own they can go and study God's word. And in this process of reading and interpreting, we teach um, some different methods. There's kind of a format that we teach, um, a, a progression. We teach students how to look at the historical, cultural context. Some of you are in my reading and interpreting class right now. We're, we're going through that. And then we, we look at some of the literary context. And then we, we go into the detailed analysis of the text where we walk through kind of sentence by sentence, line by line, through the text, unpacking meaning. And then we get to the theological component. This theological is kind of this precursor to the application. And in this particular passage, I want to look at, I'm starting out here with the theology first, and then we're going to get into the historical cultural background. I think there's a lot of uh, theological aspects to this text, but there's, there's two themes that really, really stick out that I want to just highlight here before we walk through the text. The first one is, we see in this story, Jesus goes and prays. Now, if you've had a class with me, uh, prayer is one of those elements that I talk about often. Prayer is something that's very important to me as a person. It's important to me as a professor. It's important to me as a pastor. It's important to me as a husband. It's important to me as a father. That Everything I do is bathed in prayer. And I love that we see in this story that Jesus, just prior to selecting the disciples, he goes and prays all night long. And so we have this strong theme, this element of prayer, and and I don't want that to get lost in the mix here, so just to emphasize that. But then there's this other theological component that comes into play with Jesus selecting his disciples. And it's from this aspect that I want to just kind of unpack this a bit, if you'll allow me this morning to do so. So in this process of reading and interpreting scripture, it's important that we understand the historical context. So I talk about in our classes, if we get the context wrong, we can kind of get off track in studying Scripture. And before we know it, we arrive at a conclusion that's kind of far off from where God wants us to be in terms of the passage of Scripture. And so in this story, I want to just unpack really, really quickly for you this process 
about becoming a disciple. Because Jesus choosing a disciples was not something new. This was not something that he created on the fly and was like, hey, I'm just going to make some disciples today. And, and it, like it had never, ever been done before. This was a process in Judaism. And so Jesus was just kind of following par for the course in terms of choosing these disciples. Um, a couple things to kind of comment here on is for Jews, historically speaking, um, the educational process has been very, very important and very uh, central to Judaism, to Jewish life. And we see that kind of played out here in this story. And, and borrowing a little bit of context from the Mishnah, which is a document that was compiled uh, uh, about 200, 200 AD, somewhere in there, um, describes this process that a young Jewish child and even more specifically, culturally speaking, a Jewish boy in Jesus' time, what they would maybe go through in this educational kind of discipleship type of process. So this is kind of the way that it, 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 it kind of worked. At about the age of five, it was determined by this point that, that a, a Jewish child was fit to study Scripture, that they could start learning Scripture there's even reports where uh, uh, scribes or rabbis, priests would, would even hold babies, even younger than this, where they would read the Torah to them and they would dip their fingers in honey and the babies would suck on the honey and they would kind of associate the richness of God's word, the sweetness of God's word with the hearing of the word. And so at, by age five, they were fit for scripture. By age 10, they were fit for this uh, kind of the, the oral Torah, because you got to understand um, there wasn't the printing press back then, and so not everyone had a Bible, not everyone had the version app that they could just pull up Scripture, and so it was very much an oral tradition where they would pass around Scripture orally, and so by the age of 10, they would start to study, recite the oral Torah. By 13, there was this uh, understanding that there would be a fulfillment of the commandments. By 15, they would start studying the Talmud. These were various rabbinic interpretations. By 18, maybe they would be ready for marriage. Uh, by the age of 20, they would start pursuing some type of a vocation. By 30, they would reach this, this point where they would have authority. They would have the ability to teach Torah to others. So this was kind of a, a traditional path that was relegated actually for a select few. What we find is that to be able to pursue this path, this was not something that everyone did. It was for the exceptional student. In essence, you had to be the best of the best to follow this type of format. And what we see here is typically... If you were not considered one of the best in understanding Torah, to memorize the scripture, to, to understand some of the meanings and some of the interpretations, you were kind of relegated to work the profession of your family, whatever that may be, be a fisherman, be a carpenter, whatever that may be, to work that profession, and that would be your, 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 your job for the rest of your life. But then for some of those select few they would get a chance to kind of continue to learn in Torah. And they would study underneath a rabbi or a scribe or, or a, a Pharisee or, or one of these religious leaders. And they would get immersed in the scripture. 
They would study the prophets and they would study, study the wisdom literature and they would study the historical and they would study the Pentateuch and they would just immerse themselves in God's word. All along the way, they would be memorizing the Bible. This was very common for these students that they would have the, the, the scriptures memorized. One of the aspects that I think is fascinating about the, by the, about the Apostle Paul, Paul, if you know, he was studying actually to become a Pharisee. He was one of these that you would consider kind of one of the best of the best. It was studying under one of the uh, very, very famous Pharisees of the day. Um, and part of that process would be the memorization of Scripture. And it, it's why when you read Paul's writings, you have to know often he's quoting Old Testament and he's quoting Torah. Many times it goes over our heads because we don't understand that he has Scripture just so ingrained in who he is, it just kind of comes out. Jesus does the same thing. Oftentimes he's quoting Scripture, he's giving things because he spent time memorizing, understanding God's Word. And so for the best of the best, they get to continue in this process. But for the rest, they find themselves, like on that kickball day, left out, left behind. And what we have here with this group of disciples, in actuality, is a group of people who are not considered the best of the best. It's interesting, in, um, John MacArthur wrote a book called 12 Ordinary Men. He starts off the book, he says this, if you were going to recruit a team to alter the course of history, how would you begin? He says, Jesus walked by a lake and just said to some guys, hey, follow me. The master told him and they did. Thus he begun this very uncommon mission with 12 most common individuals. Men who would become Christ's very first disciples. MacArthur says this, Have you ever considered who Jesus didn't choose for his inner circle? He didn't select a rabbi. He didn't recruit scholars. He didn't look within the religious establishments to build his team, right? Instead, it was this ragbag, ragtag bunch of guys who weren't fit enough to follow a rabbi, to study underneath a scribe, to study underneath this teacher of law. And Jesus chooses these men out of the unwanted of our society. You see, Jesus wasn't looking for religious superiority or extraordinary talent. Jesus wanted ordinary people, people with hopes, dreams of their own, people who are willing to leave their lives behind to follow the Savior, people like you and me. These were men we would not have chosen to assemble a leadership team. But yet God saw something in them. They weren't superstars. They weren't Tom Brady. They weren't Patrick Mahomes. They weren't these people, these great, great individuals. And what I want us today to understand, when we look at the calling of the disciples in Luke chapter 6, we have to know this and understand this, and I want to offer you this perspective. Be encouraged and know that God chooses you because God's going to use you. God chooses you with the intent to use you. You don't have to be more talented. You don't have to have more fame. You don't have to have more intelligence. You don't even have to have more faith. You just have to be willing to answer the call. 
When we look at the text, the first thing that we see is, is this point that I'm making is that God can use anyone. God can use anyone. So after spending time in prayer, oops, my iPad went dark there for a second. After spending time in prayer, God chose these 12 men to be his disciples, not because of their unique characteristics, but because they were willing to say yes. We have this group of men, and we could unpack them. I don't have quite have the time to walk through and unpack the dynamics of each of them. But very quickly, you have Simon, who later we call Peter. He's mentioned first in this list. I don't know if that's by accident. Peter was maybe kind of a born leader. He was very vocal, opinionated at times, quick to speak, never shy about his stance, right? Always kind of voicing something. Perhaps maybe that's why God chose him to speak a message on the day of Pentecost. When God poured out his message. You contrast Peter with his brother Andrew. Andrew is humble, meek. But it's interesting with, with Andrew, we see he's very evangelistic. He's not mentioned often in scripture three other times in the gospels. But you know what's interesting about Andrew? Every time we see him, what's he doing? He's bringing someone to Jesus. Think about that. And then... At the beginning, you get Andrew's kind of a part of this inner circle with Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, John. Later, it's just Peter, James, John. We don't see animosity or bitterness from Andrew, just faithful service. Next, we have James. says he's the son of Zebedee. He was a fiery and sometimes self-serving individual. He was bold. He was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred for his faith. James's brother comes next, John. Some uh, uh, Bible scholars believe he was maybe the youngest of the disciples. He has a very, very close relationship with Jesus. Scripture even says, uh, kind of gives this designation to him that he's the disciple that, was, that Jesus loved, which is kind of ironic that he's the one that writes that about himself. But anyways, point for another day. But Jesus trusted him so much that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he asked John to take care of his mother. We have Philip next. We don't know a lot about him. We know he was from Bethsaida. And that when called by Christ, he immediately went and told his friend Bartholomew. Bartholomew also considered possibly Nathaniel. There's a little bit of debate over that of whether or not they are one and the same. Um, we have a guy that perhaps uh, maybe was a little prejudiced. Um, had some things against other people because he actually makes a statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth speaking about Jesus? But see, we have to understand here that Jesus doesn't look at where we are or where we can be. He takes people like Nathaniel, people with faults, people maybe even with some prejudices, and he invests in their life. He doesn't say that they're not worthless, that I can't use them, but he changes them. And allows them to do great things. Next we have Matthew. He's a tax collector. Think about it. Matthew probably sacrificed more, at least from a financial standpoint, than any of the other disciples. We have Thomas. Some people call him the, I, I, I'm not good at jokes, but they say he's the disciple from Missouri. Well, you know, Missouri's the, the what? The show me state. Ba-bump. Psh. There. Anyways, so yeah, don't know. I told you I'm not, I'm not a comedian. But anyways, he, he didn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, right? He's like, he's, I want to touch the world. I want to see it. Show me. He's followed by James, the son of Alphaeus. James earns the nickname James the Less. 
Some suggest maybe he was shorter than, uh, he was shorter, one of the shorter sons, you know. Anyways, he probably got some short jokes along the way. Um, then you have Simon the Zealot, another kind of fiery person here, member of a group called the Zealots. There was Judas, the son of James, same name as Judas, who ended up betraying Jesus. It's interesting with this particular Judas later on, he goes by the name of Thaddeus, perhaps after the fact, maybe a redactor changed and, or, or he just didn't want there to be any type of confusion with, with the next and last Judas, who's Judas Iscariot. He's always the last one mentioned in every list. Judas Iscariot is an interesting figure. When we think of Judas, we always think of this kind of shady guy that's up to no good, right? Maybe you remember back to high school, there was always that one student off in the corner that you were just like, man, there's something wrong with that guy. And, and Judas was kind of that guy. Like, you, we always just kind of picture him as that. But, but I don't know if that's a really realistic picture of who maybe Judas was. Think about it. He wasn't necessarily the shady guy because when Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me, they didn't all turn around and point at Judas in the back of the room, right? What was their response? Like, Lord, is it me? Is, is it, you know, and so it wasn't like Judas stood out as being this like really shady person. In fact, it, it, it's noted that actually he was um, maybe one of the most trusted people in the group. You're like, well, how, why, why would you say that? He took care of the money. Dude, you don't let somebody take care of your money if you don't trust them, Right? I mean, I that's the way at least I operate. I'm not, if, you don't, if I don't trust you, I'm not going to let you handle my finances. They let Judas take care of the finances, which means there had to have been some level of trust that was instilled upon him. It's important to understand just in walking through that really, really quickly, the point of that was more just to demonstrate the diversity of this group, this group of ordinary people coming from different backgrounds, different vocations, different situations. And I want to tell you today, folks, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. I know you all are poor college students anyway, so it really doesn't matter, right? The disciples, they came from blue-collar backgrounds, white-collar backgrounds. Some had money, some did not. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter what your political background is. Simon, he was a zealot. This was a revolutionary group. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Matthew was a tax collector who worked for the Roman government. It didn't matter. Jesus saw them. He saw the potential. He saw them as people that he could use. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter what your degree is. And you're like, oh, dude, you're like, we're here to get a degree. What I mean by that, let me tell you this. When we talk about ministry, talk about pursuing the call of God on your life, let me just help you with something. You don't have to have the title of pastor in front of your name to do that, okay? Let's, yeah, there are pastors that stand up here and preach, and that's their role, that's their job. But for you to respond to God's call in your life, you don't have to get a pastoral degree. The call of God does not manifest as just standing behind a pulpit to preach. Whether you realize it or not, God's called all of you to something, to be that business person, to be that teacher to be the psychologist, to be the social worker, to lead youth sports, to lead adult sports, whatever it is God has called you. You know, it's interesting because Christ didn't see these people for what they've been or even what they were. He saw them for what they could become. He does the same with each and every one of us. 
God sees that potential inside of us. I stand here today as a simple little example of that. For some that have been in my ministry classes, I share this story and I don't have time to share it with you today, but for some it may come as a shocker to you. But back in 1995, yes, I am that old in ministry, I was actually dismissed from ministry for a moral failure. Let that sink in for a moment. I stand here today teaching future pastors and I have a past with a moral failure. If that doesn't mean, if that doesn't demonstrate that God can use you in spite of what you've done, I don't, I don't know what is. God doesn't care about what's in your past, folks. He cares whether or not you're going to respond. Are you willing to say yes? We see in this calling of the disciples that God can use anyone. You don't have to be stronger, richer, more powerful, more important, more popular to be used by God. God can use anyone. The reason he can use anyone is because God equips those he chooses. God chooses and he uses, and he equips those that he uses. That was the process of discipleship. That's why Jesus called these disciples over the course of the next three years, invested in their lives, poured into their lives, and prepared them to literally change the world the worship team would make their way up here to the stage. It's interesting that in this passage, they're actually called, uh, it says that Jesus called the apostles. That, that phrase was probably inserted after the fact, and Jesus may not have necessarily used that term at this point in time. But this word apostle in the Greek, it means one sent for specific purposes or mission. And there's a, there's a Hebrew equivalent of this word. And, and in the Hebrew, this word, it's used as a legal term. And it's a word that, that denotes a person who's empowered by someone to act on their behalf. God is empowering each and every one of you to act on his behalf. Out in the workplace, out in the world. And we take this ragtag group of disciples, these 12 men with, with really just plain backgrounds, nothing exceptional about them, and they literally changed the world. You and I sit here today as a direct result of what the disciples did. We're a part of this modern church because of what the disciples did. We sit and study the New Testament because of what the disciples did. Not because of who they were, but because of the potential that God saw in each and every one of their lives. And folks, that's the importance of community. When we talk about church as a body of believers together, it's you and I working together and taking your background, your degree, your interest, and coming together to further the cause of Christ. God's calling you, folks. He has a plan for your life. He has purpose. God chooses you. And he uses you. Today I want you to walk away knowing that God has chose you. He chose you for who you are. He chose you to be a light in the darkness. He chose you to be in the profession that you're going into. Why? Because God wants to use each and every one of you in a powerful way to change the world. Just like the disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God I thank you. God I thank you so much that your call, your plan for our life is not, per, uh, it's not dictated by who we are, what we've done, but it's what we can be. 
And you see that in our lives, that potential. And as a result, you've instilled purpose for each and every one of us. I pray that we would have the boldness and the confidence to step out when you call, to do what you're calling us to do, to be who you're calling us to be, and to in turn to impact the world. God, I pray that in everything we do, we would seek to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray.